0: Today's read, Asada, an autobiography by Asada Shakur, chapter five. All right, Chesamard, pack your things. You're being moved. Moved? Where? You'll find out when you get there. Then I'd like to call my lawyer. You can call your lawyer when you get where you're going. I kept trying to find out where they were taking me. The continuation of the Jersey trial after the change of venue to Morristown was still a month away. Maybe they were just moving me ahead of time. Maybe they were taking me back to the workhouse. I wasn't too worried, though. Anywhere was better than that basement in the Middlesex County Jail. The sheriff came down with a piece of paper in his hand. Where am I going, I asked him. I have a federal order to produce you, he said, waving the paper around. You are being turned over to the custody of the federal government. What for? I don't know. You'll have to ask the feds. My abrupt transfer from one jail to another, without either notice to my lawyers or explanation to me, was a scenario that would be repeated over and over again during the next few years. After our motion for a change of venue from Middlesex County was granted in October 1973, I was returned to the basement of the Middlesex County Jail where I believed I would remain until the trial resumed in Morris County on January 4, 1974. Evelyn immediately swung into action contacting the National Jury Project to explore the level of racism in Morris County and preparing a number of motions she anticipated would have to be made before the Morris County Court. In addition, she was working on the continuous motion to remove me from solitary confinement in the Middlesex County Jail that was then before the New Jersey Federal District Court. The underlying argument of the motion that this kind of confinement destroyed my ability to adequately participate in preparation for my trial had to be supported by psychological data and the opinions of experts. Evelyn was trying to find psychologists and sociologists willing to provide their professional assessments in support of the motion. She was also trying to locate a forensic pathologist, a ballistics expert, a forensic chemist, and other specialists we needed for the trial and trying to raise money to pay them. I was aware that there were two indictments outstanding against me for alleged bank robberies. Evelyn had been told that trials for these charges would follow the trial in Jersey. One of the indictments was for a Bronx bank robbery that occurred in September 1972. I had been indicted for this crime along with Kamau Avon White and others in the Federal Court, Southern District of New York, located in Foley Square in lower manhattan i knew that evelyn had made a motion before the southern district judge gagliardi to have the trial to have that trial postponed until after the termination of the jersey trial having learned that the motion had been granted i didn't connect the move to new york with the bank robbery trial i was wrong the trip was the usual high security endless procession of cars and as usual I enjoyed the ride. Just the walk from the door of the jail to the car did me good. It had been so long since I had seen daylight or breathed fresh air. I looked at the trees and the grass and the sky as if I had never seen them before. It was a gloriously beautiful day. When the feds told me they were taking me to New York to go to trial, I didn't know what in the world was going on, but I was sure. "'Evelyn would straighten things out. "'There was no way in hell I could go to trial in federal court, "'not unless they gave us time to prepare for it "'and cancel the Jersey trial. "'There was no way that Evelyn could deal with both trials "'at the same time. "'She was working so hard, "'I couldn't keep track of all that she was doing. "'I knew we had arrived somewhere in Queens, "'but I didn't know where. "'There was no courthouse in the direction we had gone.' The car came to a bridge where pigs were stationed pointing rifles and shotguns. On the other side of the bridge were more police. Where are we? Where is this place? You are now on Rikers Island. This will be your new home for a while, the marshal told me. It'll never be my home. I looked around while they waited for clearance to pass through the gate. There were huge ugly buildings in front of us. Now, not old or dilapidated as I had imagined when I pictured Rikers Island, but institutional looking nevertheless. Are all these buildings jails? I asked. Yep, said the marshal. They're all jails. There are a lot of criminals in the world. Everybody in jail isn't a criminal, I told him, and they've got a lot of criminals locking people up. They've got a gang of criminals in the White House. The marshal just grunted. The car turned into a modern brick building. There were no old-fashioned bars, just Jalau-seed window bar combinations. I was brought into a large receiving room and locked into one of the small rooms that lined the sides, empty except for some benches and a dirty bathroom. After a long wait, I was taken out to be printed and photographed. I was returned to the room, then called out again to fill out forms. I immediately got into a hassle about the forms. I had left the line for address blank. Where do you live? I don't live anywhere. I'm in jail. And I've been in jail for six months. Well, where did you live before that? I don't remember. And it wasn't a lie. I remembered the place, but I couldn't even begin to tell anyone the address. While I was underground, I made it a habit never to remember addresses. I used landmarks to remember a place, and I never had trouble locating any place I had been to once. But even if I visited it a hundred times, I never looked at the address. Well, where does your mother live? Why? We need an address. I haven't lived with my mother in years. Well, give me the address anyway. I don't know if my mother would want you to have her address, I'll have to ask her." The guard insisted, but the line was left blank. The guard was a black woman with an afro, and there was another one next to her, with a lopsided wig on. She was black too. In fact, most of the guards I had seen so far were black. I was quickly to find out that the overwhelming majority of guards in the female jail Rikers are black but when they opened their mouths and expressed their opinions you wondered but that's another story after I had been waiting for what seemed like hours they brought in a whole bunch of women it was wonderful they were real live people talking and laughing it had been so long since I had even heard a conversation I just sat there staring at them I know I must have looked like I was crazy, staring like I was, but I just couldn't help it. I was overwhelmed. I could barely talk, though. When someone asked my name, I stammered and stuttered. My voice was so low, everyone constantly asked me to repeat myself. That was one of the things that always happened to me after long periods of solitary confinement. I would forget How to talk. The next phase was the strip and search. There were two groups of women, those who were returning from court and those who, like me, were new admissions. We were directed to stand in little booths and take off all our clothes. Then, we were told to turn around, squat, run our fingers through our hair, lift up our feet, and open our mouths. This was for everybody. The next step was only for the new admissions. They put us in shower stalls without curtains. We were told to take a shower, and then were given this stuff which they told us to put in our hair and on our pubic hairs, and wash with it. What is this for, I asked. Is for lice and crabs, the guard said. It was humiliating. The last stage was the search. Every woman who came into the building had to go through this process, even if she had been nowhere but to court. Joanne Bird and Afini Shakur had told me about it after they had been bailed out in the Panther 21 trial. When they had told me, I was horrified. You mean they really put their hands inside you, to search you, I had asked, Uh uh-huh, they had answered, every woman who has ever been on the rock or in the old house of detention can tell you about it, the women call it getting the finger, or more vulgarly, vulgarily, getting finger fucked, what happens if you refuse, I had asked Afini, they lock you in the hole, and they don't let you out until you consent to be searched internally. I thought about refusing, but I sure as hell didn't want to be in the hole. I had had enough of solitary. The internal search was as humiliating and disgusting as it sounded. You sit on the edge of this table and the nurse holds your legs open and sticks a finger in your vagina and moves it around she has a plastic glove on some of them try to put one finger in your vagina and another one up your rectum at the same time anyway I had an instant mile-long attitude I wanted to punch that nurse clear to oblivion afterward the guards had the nerve to tell me that a mistake had been made and a doctor would have to make a complete examination I was just too disgusted. He was a filthy-looking man who looked more like a Bowery bum than a doctor. He coughed all over me without even covering his mouth, and his fingernails looked like he had spent the last five years in a coal mine. The only good thing was he was quick. He rattled diseases off like he was an auctioneer and asked me if I had had them. Then he gave me a one-minute examination took my blood and that was it. I was kept in the receiving room until long after everyone had left. Then a pleasant enough guard with a scar on her nose and her mouth took me to my cell. We went down a corridor that seemed to be a mile long to a hallway where a guard sat inside a glass cage. Buttons and knobs and lights decorated the cage. It looked like the inside of some kind of spaceship. Open up five, the guard who had brought me, said. There was a thumping sound and then a humming sound and then nothing. You can go in your room now. Go where, I asked. Just walk down the hall and the door will open. You'll see it. The hallway was long. When I got to the cell, the light came on. When I went in, the door slid shut behind me. It was something out of a science fiction movie. The long halls the sliding door, the control panel. Space jail, I said to myself. Inside, there was a cot, a dirty sink, a seatless toilet, and a roll of toilet paper. I was tired and wanted to go to sleep. I'm turning the light out now, a voice said over the microphone. The light went out, but a yellow light stayed on. Turn the little light off, please, I called to the guard. Again, a voice came on over a microphone. The light must stay on. It is there for your own protection. The light stayed on and I went to sleep. Morning, the doors slid open. Breakfast, ladies, came over the microphone. It was early, but I was anxious to get dressed and look around. The first thing that hit me was the smell. I don't care what jail I've been in, they all stink. They have a smell unlike any smell on earth like blood and sweat and feet and open sores and if misery has a smell like misery the walls of the cell were covered with obscenities and love declarations Apache loves Carmen Linda and Lil Bit India and Rosa true love always from the window I could see a small paved yard with a with grass growing between the cracks in the pavement and then another long building. A few women were in the day room, but most stayed in their cells, which were barren except for the toothpaste writing that covered the walls. In prison, toothpaste serves many functions, one of which is glue to hang up pictures. A few of the cells were fixed up, with pictures from magazines hanging on the walls and a knitted or crocheted afghan on the bed clothes and cardboard boxes were on the floor. The women looked evil and ashen. They glanced at me with only vague interest and went about their business. They were all black or Hispanic. I took a shower and spent the rest of the morning walking back and forth. Some of the women were bloated with swollen hands and feet. A few had real strange, had a real strange look about them. One sat in a chair her eyes crusted with sleep giggling quietly to herself a group of women sat at a table playing spades they asked me if i wanted to play and since i had never heard of the game volunteered to teach me it turned it turned out to be like whist only spades are always trumps then it was lock-in time again the second one for the day the first had come after breakfast There were two women on either side of me who had been locked in their cells all day. Don't you want to come out, I asked stupidly. They broke up laughing. No, one said. I like it here. When she stopped laughing, she told me she was locked. That meant she was locked into her cell until she was seen by the board. What's the board, I asked. It's the disciplinary board. When you get an infraction, they lock you up until you see the board then they let you out sometimes but we're going to psa what's that it's the hole the bing this is too main where you go before they take you to the board then after that if they think you haven't done enough time down here they send you to psa psa stands for punitive segregation area solitary you mean you don't stay in this part all the time no we're on the sentence side we only have to come here because we stole the medication. We stole almost everything on the medication truck and drank it. Coke almost OD'd. That's why we're down here. This part is for people who have infractions or for crazy people. Crazy people? Yeah, the one named Coke answered. They've got some real bugs down here. How come you here? I don't know. I got here yesterday and this is where they put me. You got a homicide? A homicide? Yeah, a homicide. You here for murder? I have a homicide case in New Jersey, but I'm here for a bank robbery trial. That's probably why they got you down here, they speculated. They probably gonna move you soon. They asked a million questions. Who'd you kill? I didn't kill anybody. Well, who did they say you killed? A cop? A New Jersey state trooper? Oh, shit. You gonna have a hard way to go. You didn't really do it? no you got a bank robbery too did you rob the bank how much money did you get i didn't get any money because i didn't rob the bank yeah then your boyfriend did it and put the blame on you no i don't have a boyfriend oh so you like girls funny they laughed you're kind of cute you want to go with me one of them joked. you ever do time before no never you got any other cases yeah i have another bank robbery Did you do that one? No. Well, damn, they got you all hooked up, the one called Dolores said. How come they trying to frame you up like that? Because I'm a revolutionary. They said that I'm in the Black Liberation Army. Oh, ah, I know you. You that girl I read about in the papers. Yeah, what's your name? Asada. Asada Shakur. But my slave name is Joanne Chesimard. Yeah, you the one. I never thought I'd meet you. How you doing? Yeah, Coke said. I saw your picture on TV, but you look different now. How? I asked. When I saw your picture, I thought you was much bigger and much blacker, too. Really? (laughs) I laughed. It was a statement I heard over and over. Everybody told me they thought I was bigger, blacker, and uglier. When I asked people... What they thought I looked like They would describe someone about Six feet tall 200 pounds And very dark and wild looking Bad as the paper said you was I just knew you had to look bad And here you are Just a little old thing I asked them What they were in prison for In the course of those next few days, I was to learn a whole new vocabulary. Jostling was pickpocketing. Boosting was shoplifting. Juggling paper was writing bad checks and dragging or playing drag was conning. Later that evening, a woman who had just come from court told me that Phyllis wanted me to come to the gym at 8.30. I was overjoyed. I had heard that Simba was on the rock, but I thought they might move her to make sure we had no chance to be together. The gym was large. Women were playing basketball, handball, dancing, sitting on the bleachers, and talking. Finally, behind a clump of women, I saw Simba. We embraced and both just sat there trying to get out all the words that were in our hearts. So much had happened since we had seen each other, We had been close when we were both members of the Black Panther Party. For a while, we had lived together. She was always a real earthy sister with a heart of gold. She told me about her case, about the other comrades she was in touch with, and then that she was pregnant. Homie was her nickname for her lover, the baby's father, Kakuyan Olupala. He was a beautiful revolutionary brother, and he was murdered by the New York police. Kakuyan and I had gotten to know each other pretty well while we were both at the Harlem branch of the Black Panther Party. He was one of the brothers who, in the days of the Panther Party's lumpin ideology, would be called Lumpen. He was raised in Harlem around 116th Street and 8th Avenue. A relaxed, easy kind of person, but a fighter to the heart. He loved weapons, and he was a genius with them. I was glad about her pregnancy and sad at the same time. She was facing 25 years. Although I tried to be cheerful, I guess she could see the concerned expression on my face. Don't worry, she told me. These people can lock us up, but they can't stop life just like they can't stop freedom. This baby was meant to be born to carry on, They murdered homie, and so this baby, like all our children, is going to be our hope for the future. I would think about her words many times later. It's early in the morning. It feels like a quarter to zero, and I want to sleep. I hear my name vaguely over the microphone. Something about court. They are calling me for court. Hurriedly, I roll roll out of bed. Shower, dress, comb my hair, and I'm ready to go. They bring breakfast on the food truck. I can't even stand the look of food, much less eat anything. All right, court ladies, time to go to the receiving room, the microphone wails. It's too early in the morning for that thing. I want to tear it out of the ceiling. I stumble down to the receiving room, still not fully awake. It's 7.20 a.m. I sit in the receiving room for three hours. Finally, the marshals come. Now they want me to hurry. One of them chains me up. First he shackles my feet. Then he puts a chain around my waist, fastens the handcuffs to the chain, and handcuffs me on my hands. I can barely walk or shuffle. Court. Dull. Gray. Dull green. They're putting me into the bullpen. I don't know why they call it a bullpen, though I have often speculated attorney visit. One of the marshals calls as he opens the bars to let me out. We go to the end of the hall. Evelyn is puffing and huffing. She always puffs and huffs when she's angry. In a few minutes, I know that she will begin pacing and tapping her feet. They're trying to force us to go to trial right away, she tells me. You know, I've been busy drawing up motions for federal court. What do you mean federal court? Aren't we in federal court? Yes. But if the judge denies our motion for postponement, I want to be ready to go straight into the circuit court. What's the circuit court? It was all Greek to me. That's where we appeal if the judge issues an unfavorable opinion. We go on talking. Evelyn is trying to explain to me, and I am trying to explain to her, that we can't possibly go to trial. There's no way in the world you can be ready to go to trial right now. I'm ranting. I know. I know, Evelyn replies. I rant and rave indignantly while Evelyn tries to explain the law to me. They call us to court. The judge is Gagliardi. He looks just like what he is, a racist dog cracker. Kamal comes into the courtroom. I am delighted to see him. He has aged. He's grinning, but under the grin, his face is hungry. I wonder what he's thinking. Bob Bloom, Kamal's lawyer, is up on his feet talking. He is asking for a postponement. Everything he says is logical and makes sense. Evelyn gets up and starts to rap. She is talking pure, unmitigated truth and logic. The judge looks at the ceiling. I predict the outcome of the hearing and keep turning around to look at the audience friendly, familiar faces smiling at me. I don't want them to ever stop. The judge denies our emotion for a postponement. The judge denies all our emotions. I want to scream. Dirty dog. Slimy pig. You're not a judge. You're just another prosecutor. I look at the prosecutor. He's smug. His face is unreal, like a poster He looks like a 1940 war poster. John Q. Public. I keep staring at him. Nobody could look that corny. He's like a ghost from the past. I'm convinced he doesn't know it's 1973. The lawyers ask for a joint meeting and the judge says yes, but make it short. The lawyers outline the strategy of the appeals. What are our chances on this appeal, I ask. There's a chance, Evelyn says. Slim. Slim. Maybe, but a chance. If the courts are interested in justice, well of course, they'll support our position. We all know how big and if it is. The next time we went to court five days later, it had snowed. The trees were bare and covered with ice and though I don't like winter, it was a beautiful sight. As soon as I arrived in the courthouse, Evelyn was there to tell me that the circuit court had denied all of our appeals and gagliardi was talking about going to trial that day i just want you to understand that there is no way that i can adequately defend you on this short notice i haven't had time to prepare pre-trial motions i have received no discovery material and i haven't even had time to think about an appropriate defense because i haven't been able to find out the basic facts of the case. I just want you to know that I know, I told her, and I know you're doing the best that you can. At any rate, Evelyn said, if worst comes to worst, you'll have a solid issue for appeal. It was a depressing picture. We clearly were being railroaded. We went before the judge. Again, he was arrogant and belligerent, determined to force us to go to trial right away. Again, she asked the judge for a postponement. But her argument fell on deaf ears. He ruled that we could have a joint conference later, but the trial would begin immediately. As we left the courtroom, Akila was standing in the hallway with Kisisi, Kamau's two-year-old daughter. As he walked near her, she held out her arms to him. Kamau took about two steps toward her and the marshals jumped him and began beating him I jumped on the marshals and tried to pull them off. In an instant, there was one hell of a fight in the hallway. Finally, the marshals drew their guns and forced us to lie down on the floor with our arms spread apart. We lay there while they stomped our backs and kicked us as they handcuffed our hands behind our backs. Akila, can tell. Akila ran to tell everybody what was going on as Kisise screamed hysterically. I will never forget the haunting scream of that child as she watched her father being brutally beaten. After the fight, the marshals were vicious and vindictive. They did everything they could to provoke and harass us. Newspapers reported that we had attacked the marshals. Kamau and I decided that we weren't just going to let ourselves be railroaded quietly This so-called trial was such a blatant miscarriage of justice that we weren't even going to participate in it. And we didn't want Evelyn and Bob Bloom to participate in it either. Just sit there and don't say anything, we told them. We'll do the talking. And do the talking we did. At the next court session, Gagliardi asked the lawyers if they were prepared to begin picking the jury. Both of them made statements to the effect that since it was impossible for them to represent us adequately, we had requested that they remain mute. All right then, we'll proceed with you or without you, the judge roared. Bring in the panel. As soon as the jury panel entered the courtroom, Kamau and I began telling them what was going on. We told the jury that he had been appointed by Nixon and that he was persecuting us because of our political beliefs, that he was the same judge who had just given Mitchell and Stans the Watergate defendants who did not have one fraction of the valid reasons for an adjournment that we had, an extended postponement. After a while, the judge ordered us removed from the courtroom. Jury selection continued with only the judge, and the prosecutor participating. Every so often, the judge would send the marshals back to ask us if we were going to behave. Of course, we would tell the marshals. Once returned to the courtroom, we behaved. Again, we told the jury what was happening and that the judge was trying to railroad us. As soon as we began to talk, the judge ordered us from the court. Whenever we were about to be thrown out, the marshals vied for Positions closest to us, for the opportunity, for the opportunity to grab us, twist our hands behind our backs, and get their licks in. To avoid being manhandled, as soon as the judge said, "Remove the defendants from the courtroom," I would say, "The defendant will remove herself." Most of the time, it work. but one day the marshals were so gung ho. They jumped on me and started brutalizing me in open court. Evelyn jumped up like she was ready to fight and stood between me and them, holding them away with an outstretched hand. She complained to the judge. My arm and hand had not yet fully recovered, and I was still partially paralyzed. Evelyn's remarks made the marshals more vicious. They became so brutal that all of the spectators began to cry out. As the marshals carried me out of the courtroom, the spectators chanted, Railroad! Railroad! The judge ordered them removed. As I was being taken downstairs, I could hear the commotion. People were chanting and yelling and screaming. The marshals, I later found out, had beaten some of them. I sat in the bullpen, lost in my thoughts. When they brought a white woman and man down the hallway and put the woman in the cell with me, I looked at her without much interest. "'Asada,' she said. "'I'm so glad to finally have met you, but I never thought I would this way.' I looked at her blankly. "'My name is Natalie Rosenstein. I was upstairs. I was one of the spectators in the courtroom when they started pushing and shoving and beating people.' "'What?' I said. "'You're kidding. No, we didn't move fast enough, so they arrested us,' she said." "'referring to herself and the white man, "'What did they charge you with? "'Obstructing justice?' "'After that, Kamau and I were banned from the courtroom. "'We were put into a freezing room next to the courtroom, "'where a loudspeaker had been installed "'so we could listen to the trial. "'In the beginning, they slammed the door shut,' At first, we wanted the door open because it was so cold and the warmth from the rest of the building helped. Then we began to enjoy the privacy. It was good to be able to talk to each other without someone looking down our throats because we knew that sooner or later they would open the door and stare at us. We would open it. Let some heat in. It's freezing in here. The door stays closed. After a while, they locked it. One of the first things that Kamau and I had discussed was Islam. He had been a Muslim for some time and was deep into it. He was seriously trying to convince me to convert and become a practicing, active Muslim. I had always said that if I had any religion, it was Islam, but I had never practiced it. Because of Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm X, the Muslim influence over our struggle has been very strong, but it had always been difficult for me to accept the idea of an all-powerful, all-seeing, all-knowing God. And I reasoned how could I be expected to love and worship a God whose master plan included the enslavement, torture, and murder of black people. Kamau argued that Islam was a just religion, opposed to oppression. Oppression is worse than slaughter, he quoted from the Holy Quran. A true Muslim is a true revolutionary. There is no contradiction between being a Muslim and being a revolutionary. I didn't know much about it, but I agreed to seriously check it out. Muslim services were held regularly on Rikers Island and Simba and I began to attend. Talking to Kamau was so good for me solitary had affected me really badly. I had closed up inside myself and had forgotten how to relate in an open way with people. We spent whole days laughing and talking and listening to the courtroom madness in between. Each day we grew closer until one day it was clear to both of us that our relationship was changing. It was growing physical We began to touch and to hold each other, and each of us was like an oasis for the other. For a few days, the question of sex was there. Then, one day, we talked about it. Surely, it was possible, but I thought. The consequences. Pregnancy was certainly a possibility. I was facing life in prison. Kamal would also be in prison for a long time. The child would have no mother and no father. Kamau said, if you become pregnant and you have a child, the child will be taken care of. Our people will not let the child grow up like a weed. I thought about it. That was true, but the child would suffer. All our children suffer, Kamau said. We cannot guarantee our children a future in a world like this. Struggling is the only guarantee our children will ever have for a future. You may never have another chance to have a child. I have to think, I told him. My mind was screaming, who would take care of my baby? I thought about what Simba had said about our children being our hope for the future. I had never wanted a child. Since I was a teenager, I had always said that the world was too Horrible to bring another human being into, and a black child. We see our children frustrated at best, noses pressed against windows, looking in, and at worst, we see them die from drugs or oppression, shot down by police, or wasted away in jail. My head was swimming. What had my mother and grandmother and great grandmother thought? when they brought their babies into this world? What had my ancestors thought when they brought their babies into this world? Only to see them flogged and raped, bought and sold. I thought and thought, how many black children are separated from their parents? How many grow up with their grandmothers and grandfathers? Didn't I stay with my grandparents? until my mother had finished school and was on her feet. I remembered all the discussions I had had. I'm a revolutionary, I had said. I don't have time to sit at home and make no babies. Do you think that you're a machine, a brother had asked me? Do you think you were put on this earth to fight and nothing else? I thought about what Zaid had always told me. While you're alive, girl, you better live. I am about life, I said to myself. I'm going to live as hard as I can and as full as I can until I die. And I'm not letting these parasites, these oppressors, these greedy, racist swine make me kill my children in my mind before they are even born. I'm going to live. And I'm going to love Kamau. And if a child comes from that union, I'm going to rejoice because our children are our futures, and I believe in the future and in the strength and rightness of our struggle. I was ready for whatever happened. I relaxed and let nature take its course. When something important was happening in the courtroom, We listened, but usually, whatever was happening droned on in boring chatter that amounted to nothing. Lawyers have the habit of turning ten words into a hundred and saying nothing more in the process. The trial was like something out of some playwright's imagination. We called it the vaudeville show. Evelyn and Bob, after registering their daily protests, sat mute. The judge raved and ranted the pigs barked like vicious dogs the witnesses quote-unquote lied like crazy the jurors who had been picked solely by the prosecution looked and listened expressionlessly there were a couple of black jurors and although we held little hope we would be acquitted we placed the microscopic hope we did have in the black jurors even though we had presented no defense Had not participated in the trial, we thought that there was a slim chance they might not go along with the program. Black people are generally not as brainwashed as white people when it comes to the so-called system of justice. The whole court process began to take its toll on me. Half the time, I wasn't eating because they usually served pork for lunch and sometimes they had pork for dinner. Breakfast was out of the question. I could never figure out what they gave us. I called it Monsters too. I was always freezing and I didn't have a coat. My mother had brought me one, but I had given it to Simba. She was pregnant and needed it more than I did. One night, when I returned from court, I began to feel awful. Like a knife was stabbing me in my side. I could hardly breathe. I went to the prison doctor and the diagnosis was... Blue curacy. When the judge learned I was sick and unable to come to court, he had a fit. He acted like I had gotten sick just to delay the trial. The next time I saw the prison doctor, he was nervous and shook up. They keep calling me about you, he said. They want you back in court right away. They want to know how fast I can have you back in the courtroom. Who keeps calling you, I asked. Everybody. People. I've got to get you back in court as soon as possible. And that's exactly what he did. Every day, they brought us into the courtroom. And every day, as soon as the jury came in, we began to tell them what was happening. That we were being forced to trial without being given time to prepare a defense. And every day, the judge ordered us removed from the courtroom and cited us for contempt. It was comical. "'What are you gonna do?' I would ask him, after I had been cited for contempt for the hundredth time. "'Put me in jail. Lock me up.' One day, when the judge had been particularly crazy, and the marshals had been particularly brutal, Evelyn just couldn't take it anymore. "'I'm not just gonna sit here and watch this spectacle,' she said. "'If you won't permit me to defend my client, there is no purpose.' And my being here and with that she got up and started to leave get back in here the judge yelled I order you to get back in here and sit down Evelyn kept walking if you don't come back and sit down I'm citing you for contempt Evelyn walked out of the courtroom the judge cited her for contempt in 1975 after all appeals including the Supreme Court of the United States were denied She served the 10-day sentence in maximum security at the Westchester County Jail for Women. The trial soon ended, and we waited patiently for the verdict. Evelyn and Bob gave us lectures. Expect nothing but the worst. There's a chance, but it's slim. Kamau and I waited for the conviction. One day of jury deliberation passed. Two days passed. The jury seemed to be taking forever. We wondered what was taking them so long. It was an open and shut case. We had cross-examined no witnesses, presented no defense. Kamau and I spent the time tenderly savoring our last few moments together. The next morning, Evelyn and Bob came in grinning. It's a hung jury, they giggled. Gagliardi is fit to be tied. They're going to call us into court in a few minutes. We just thought we'd come in and give you the good news. Ten minutes later, we were in the courtroom. The judge was grimly thanking, grimly thanking, and dismissing the jury. The marshals looked like they wanted to fight. The prosecutor looked like he wanted to cry. We found out later that a lone black juror had refused to convict us. He had heard us. The look on Gagliardi's face gave me great pleasure. I looked at him and gave him my most meaningful smile. His face turned red and he looked away. Afterward, we met with the lawyers. We were still giddy and in a state of shock. What does this mean? Are they going to try us again? They're going to try you again and right away, Evelyn told us. The new trial will begin on Monday. Kamau and I looked at each other. We were sick of this case. But we're ecstatic that we were going to have more time together. Are we going to have the same judge? No, Bob said. They've got to assign a new judge. Evelyn was caught up in our gleeful mood, but... As usual, she was business first. We've got to come up with a trial strategy. Sitting in that courtroom day after day and watching that fiasco enabled us to do one thing. We were able to see and analyze their case. I feel that now we are ready to go to trial. They don't have a case, Bob said. I don't even know how they got an indictment. "'We know,' Kamau and I said. "'Their case is utterly absurd,' Evelyn said. "'We know,' Kamau and I droned again. "'Their witnesses are as phony as $3 bills,' Evelyn said. "'We know. "'They don't have one piece of physical evidence,' Evelyn ranted. "'No photographs. "'No fingerprints. "'No witnesses. "'No nothing.' "'We know,' Kamal and I chanted in unison. "'They couldn't possibly have any evidence,' I said. "'We weren't there.' "'Well, I know that,' Evelyn said indignantly. "'Indignantly. That's not the point.' Bob and Kamal looked perplexed. Evelyn and I just looked at each other and smiled knowingly. We had found out in New Jersey how evidence could appear out of nowhere and other evidence disappear.' Evelyn and I have a very close relationship. We love each other intensely and we get along wonderfully, usually, but when we do argue or disagree, it's awful. We are both outraged that the other one doesn't agree or see our point and we feel betrayed and furious, and neither of us has the mildest temper in the world. Add to that the tremendous pressure we were both under. And you have the recipe for fireworks. During one of our strategy meetings, Evelyn and I locked horns. Try as we might, we couldn't reach any kind of agreement. After a while, we weren't even communicating. It became a matter of who had the last word and the final decision. I'm the lawyer, she yelled. I know what I'm doing. If you aren't going to listen to me, then what's the point of having me defend you? I'm the client, I yelled back. I'm the one who's going to do the 25 years in prison if you're wrong. What you're saying is that you don't trust me or my judgment, Evelyn said. Our argument went from bad to worse. After a while, we were saying all kinds of things we didn't mean to each other. I don't need this shit, Evelyn stormed. What the hell do I need to defend you for? You haven't got an ounce of sense. "'You don't have to defend me if you don't want to,' I responded. "'Don't do me any favors.' "'You need all the favors you can get,' Evelyn countered.
1: "'Well,
0: I don't need them from you. "'I can defend my own damn self as well as you can. "'I'd like to see you try it. "'I don't need this mess. "'I will. "'I don't need you either. "'Well, go ahead and defend your stupid self then,' Evelyn screamed. "'I will.' "'After the argument, I was tired and blank.' All the tension had been drained out of my body. I was still mad, but I was sorry too. Evelyn was probably right, and I was probably crazy. It's so hard working with someone who is so close to you. It's like having your mother, or your wife, or husband as your lawyer. It's real hard to be objective. Personal stuff sometimes gets in the way. I didn't know whether I was being a sane adult or a rebellious child. The next time we came to court, I could see right away that Evelyn was still angry with me. I fully intended to try and make up, but her cold manner made me draw back and get mad all over again. "'Is your decision still the same?' she asked coldly. "'Yes,' I responded icily. "'Judge,' she told the new judge, "'I wish to be relieved from this case. "'Miss Shakur wishes to retain another lawyer.' Is this true? The judge asked me. Yes. I want to defend myself. A little while later, she was off the case. As I sat in the bullpen, feeding, feeling stupid and stubborn, the guard brought in a public defender. Gagliardi had assigned him because he didn't like the way Evelyn was behaving. I told him I didn't want him to represent me, that I was representing myself. The judge had assigned him to my case. What did you do before you were a public defender? He told me that once upon a time, he had been a prosecutor. That was the end of that conversation. I would rather have had an alligator for a lawyer. I don't even remember his name, but he sat through both trials as my supposed lawyer, even though I refused to even speak to him. Since I was now defending myself, I was entitled to a lawyer as an advisor, Everyone suggested lawyers, but most of them were white leftists. I wanted, if at all possible, a black woman. Not just any black woman lawyer, but someone who was in tune with the politics of the black liberation struggle. One of the names given me was Flo Florence Kennedy. She was a black lawyer who was very active in the women's movement well-known on the speaking circuit from coast to coast, and more renowned as a feminist and political activist than as a lawyer. She fit the bill perfectly. She was just what I wanted. Some argued against her, but Asada, they said, she's not a trial lawyer. Flo is not a criminal lawyer. You need both. Someone who can give you sound advice. I was unmoved by their arguments. She's wild. She's flamboyant and eccentric, eccentric. She might scare the jury. She can't be any wilder than this case is. I can I countered. Besides, I don't need a criminal lawyer because this isn't a criminal case. I need a political lawyer. I was in a wild mood, and I was determined to handle the case the way I saw fit. I wasn't expecting any such thing as justice. This case was like something out of the Twilight Zone and I was convinced that it couldn't be treated like a normal, run-of-the-mill criminal trial. I was determined to use this case to expose the deceit and crookedness of the government. A meeting between Flo and me was arranged. Flo warned me over and over about her lack of trial experience. You know, darling, that I haven't been inside a courtroom to try a case in years. I don't care, I said. You've been out in the world. You know what reality is and that's enough. Flo agreed to be my legal advisor and I was ready to go to trial.